Hi, everyone, and welcome back to the Virtual Voyage on Radio Free Hillsdale 101.7 FM. I'm your host, Abigail Snyder, and this is the Armchair Travel Show, where you don't have to leave your comfort zone. If your comfort zone is your car, you stay there. If your comfort zone is your dorm room, you stay there. And if your comfort zone is your living room, you stay there. Last time on the Virtual Voyage, we had the opportunity to meet a special guest, Dr. Frederick Branfon, one of the lead archaeologists of the excavations at Tel Be'er Sheva. It was fascinating to learn more about this site all the way in the south of biblical Israel, and I especially enjoyed Dr. Branfon's stories. But as we head up north for today's tour, let's recap what we learned last time. First, I want to briefly mention that Beersheba shows up in the Old Testament several times, especially in Genesis. In Genesis 21, we learn that Abraham made a covenant with Abimelech, a Philistine king. And I love what the Bible recounts as Abimelech saying to Abraham, God is with you in everything you do. We don't know the status of Abimelech's heart, but he was a Philistine and wouldn't necessarily be a worshiper of the one true God. But he sees God in Abraham's life. He sees that God has blessed Abraham. Although Abraham made mistakes, he also lived in such a way that other people could see God through his life. May we be like Abraham in this way, such that those around us who do not have a personal relationship with God may say, God is with you in everything you do which may give us a chance to share more about how God has changed our lives. Now, at Beersheba, Abraham and Abimelech made a covenant. And then it said that the place was called Beersheba because these two men swore an oath there. As we learned from Dr. Branfon's translation last time, the name Beersheba means well of seven, although some have also translated it as well of the oath, perhaps more directly pointing to this covenant between Abraham and Abimelech. Beersheba is also significant because the Bible says it's a place where Abraham called on the Lord, the eternal God. In the Hebrew, it's these letters, Yod, He, Vav, He. Those are are the Hebrew letters. And in English, we might say Y-H-V-H. Yahweh is how we commonly say it. It's the most sacred name of God, so sacred, in fact, that the ancient Hebrew scribes would not write or even pronounce it. No one was supposed to say uh, the name of God. If you think about it, Y-H-V-H is actually unpronounceable. Just try to say it. No, it doesn't work. There are no vowels. So we say Yahweh, but really we're just adding vowels and essentially guessing. No one truly knows. But because Jews in ancient times, and still today, mind you, do not want to mispronounce God's name, they simply say Adonai, which means my Lord, whenever they find the YHVH anywhere in the Tanakh, anywhere in the Old Testament. Well, returning to Abraham, that YHVH is the name of God that he called on. According to Genesis, he called on Yahweh, whom he later affirms as the eternal God. Beersheba is also a place of significance to the other patriarchs. Later, in Genesis 26, Isaac goes to Beersheba and God appears to him, saying, I am the God of your father Abraham. Do not be afraid, for I am with you. I will bless you and will increase the number of your descendants for the sake 
of my servant Abraham. That's a special moment because God essentially affirms that the covenant he created with Abraham is one that will also apply to Isaac and his sons and his sons and so on. God will be with him and his descendants because he specially chose Abraham and his descendants out of all the nations of the world to be his people. And let me just say that that covenant still holds true today. I know I frequently point us back to this fact, but it bears repeating, especially as so many people make the false claim that the modern church has replaced Israel. It's a blessing that Gentiles like me and maybe you can be grafted in as God's children and find salvation. But I know that God made a special promise with Abraham that uniquely applies to him and his descendants. Note what God told Abraham. I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant between me and you and your descendants after you for the generations to come to be your God and the God of your descendants after you. An everlasting covenant. Now that's unique. It extends through all of time. God can't break his promises. If he says something, it must be true. And that's why I so adamantly believe that God is not yet done with Israel. For God to be done with the Jewish people means that his covenant is not, in fact, everlasting. That would make God a liar, a sinner, and honestly, things just crumble from there. God's plan for Israel, even today, may seem like a non-essential theological debate, but I would contend just the opposite. It is essential. And we're living in a unique time as we're seeing the return of the Jewish people to the land that God gave them, the land of Israel, where we now stand. Well, back to Beersheba here on the virtual voyage on Radio Free Hillsdale 101.7 FM. We've been seeing over and over again that Beersheba is a place where God shows himself to the patriarchs. I'm not saying that this place is some sort of mystical land, but I am saying that it's interesting to trace how the patriarchs continue to encounter God at this site, the place we stood at last time. At the very end of Genesis, we learn that Jacob, also known as Israel, stops at Beersheba on his way to Egypt to meet up with his son Joseph. You'll recall that there was a terrible famine in the land of Canaan, also known as Israel. But Joseph, who had been sold into slavery in Egypt by his brothers, ends up saving his family from starvation. He had been elevated from a slave to second-in-command in Egypt, and he ends up meeting his brothers when they come to Egypt for food. Joseph was the son whom Jacob dearly loved, and Jacob was so excited to see Joseph again, so the entire family goes down to Egypt. Now, Egypt is obviously south of Israel, and Beersheba was right at the southern border of biblical Israel. So it makes sense that Jacob would have stopped in Beersheba on the way to Egypt. When Jacob is at Beersheba, God speaks to him in a vision, and he tells him something similar to what he told Isaac, his father. I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for I will make you into a great nation there. I will go down to Egypt with you, and I will surely bring you back again. And Joseph's own hand will close your eyes. Again, it's the affirmation of the promise God has made with the Israelites, the Jewish people. He promised he would take Jacob and his family to Egypt, a land of foreigners, and he would also bring them out to safety again. 
not only would he just bring them out, but he would make them into a great nation. God is a God of the impossible. Only he could take a small people like the Israelites to a powerful nation like Egypt and save them, eventually bringing them back to the land of Israel. Think of how amazing it is that God has done this again and again and again for the Jewish people. Each time they are scattered or go to lands not their own, God brings them back to Israel, just as he is bringing them back to Israel today. There were 700,000 Jews in Israel in 1948 when the state of Israel was officially founded. And there are over 7 million Jews in Israel, a tenfold increase, today. And that, my friends, is the story of what God can do as part of a fulfillment of his promise and prophecies in just less than 75 years. Well, that's a little more of the biblical side of Beersheba. Hopefully you now feel that you have a more complete understanding of the site, having learned about its history and archaeology from a lead archaeologist, Dr. Branfon, and then also seeing the ways in which God has shown himself to the patriarchs of Israel at that site. And really, that's what I want you all to get out of our tours. Too many people only look at one side of Israel. That is, they, they separate the archaeology and history from the Bible, only taking the archaeology, or they flip it. They only take the Bible and leave the archaeology behind. But Israel is a land where archaeology, history, and the Bible come together to form a cohesive story. And it's one we're blessed to explore here on our Adventures in Israel on the Virtual Voyage on Radio Free Hillsdale 101.7 FM. Well, we've been in the car for about an hour and a half now, and we just have about 10 minutes more left on the road before we arrive at today's stop, Caesarea, more specifically known as Caesarea Maritima. Before we arrive, let me give you a little bit of the history. Caesarea is a beautiful city on the coast of the Mediterranean Sea. Today it's a popular vacation spot for people in Israel who want to relax by the beach, but there's also a rather significant archaeological park there that we'll spend the majority of our time at. This city was originally established in the 4th century BC by Phoenicians, but we have no architectural remains from their time because it's believed that Herod the Great decimated what was left of the Phoenician settlement, what we call Stratton's Tower, uh, when he founded Caesarea as a major city in 22 BC. Well, I should say that he's the one responsible for making it great. It's actually Augustus Caesar, the Roman emperor, who gave it to Herod, and Herod renamed it to Caesarea Maritima to honor Augustus Caesar. Herod even built a temple to Augustus at the site. He was really making sure that Augustus knew he appreciated getting given this site. Now, at Caesarea Maritima, and not just plain Caesarea, although a lot of people do just call it Caesarea, and that's so it's not confused with Caesarea Philippi in the north of Israel. We've been there just a few tours ago. That place is also called Banyas. But Herod the Great, you see, he's really important with regard to Caesarea. He had a palace here, and we'll actually get to see the remains of that. And he also completed one of the most complex engineering feats of his day by creating a harbor at Caesarea and constructing breakwaters using concrete that hardened under the water. We'll get into that more later. Again, thanks to Herod, this city became so important that around 6 AD, it was the seat of the Roman administration in Israel. 
If you remember from history, Israel became a Roman province in 6 AD, and the Romans considered Caesarea an important enough place that they made it the capital of Judea, of Israel. And honestly, the fact that they could take a break on the beach after a long day at work probably aided the case for making Caesarea the capital. Muslims, crusaders, Mamluks, and others lived in the city, but after 1291 AD, it wasn't suitable to live in. That's because the Muslims destroyed the city so that the crusaders could never settle there again. Let's just say they were successful in their goal. Caesarea Maritima isn't just a nice city on the sea that was eventually destroyed. It also has biblical significance. It was the headquarters of Pontius Pilate, and he left Caesarea during the Passover festival in Jerusalem to maintain order there during a time where so many Jews were gathered in one place. Naturally, he was worried about a potential uprising against the Roman rule, which of course the Jews were, were not happy about. And when Pontius Pilate was in Jerusalem this, this year, he also sentenced Jesus to death, giving in to the mob who wanted the criminal Barabbas released instead of the perfect and sinless Son of God. Additionally, the Apostle Paul spent two years here in Caesarea imprisoned, and he preached to King Agrippa II, the great-grandson of Herod the Great who really resurrected Caesar. If you remember, King Agrippa II was really moved by Paul's words. Paul shares his conversion story of how he went from persecuting the early Christians as Saul to one of the most faithful Christians ever named Paul. At the end of his speech, the king asked Paul, do you think that in such a short time you can persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul responds, Short time or long, I pray to God that not only you, but all who are listening to me today may become what I am, except for these chains. Paul wasn't afraid to boldly proclaim the gospel, even when he knew the men around him could have killed him at any moment, because he knew that they were desperately in need of the saving power of the gospel and he hoped that they too would accept it as the free gift that it is. Well, we're just arriving here at our first stop at Caesarea Maritima on the Mediterranean Sea, here on the virtual voyage on Radio Free Hillsdale 101.7 FM. You may have noticed a sign a few kilometers back that said something like, turn here for Caesarea Archaeological Park. Well, we'll return there in a few minutes, but I first want to head over to a wonderfully preserved Roman aqueduct. This is truly one of Caesarea's highlights. Come out of the bus and let's walk up to it. It's absolutely gorgeous. All the beautiful stone arches and right behind us, right there is the Mediterranean. In fact, if you look to the left, you'll actually see a structure a few kilometers that way jutting out. That's part of Herod's palace at the archaeological park and we'll head there soon. But back to this aqueduct. So, so first I need to provide a clarification on what an aqueduct is because most people don't have the term quite right. It may be tempting to think that the whole structure, including all of these arches supporting the water channel on top, is the aqueduct. But an aqueduct is something quite simple. It's just a water channel. With it being a water channel, it must have a gentle gradient. In other words, the channel must remain somewhat level as it passes over a variety of terrain so that the water properly flows to its intended destination. The water can't go too fast or too slow. Now, sometimes the water will need to flow right through the middle of a mountain because it would be too much for the water to go over the mountain. So in that case, a tunnel must be carved 
through the middle of the mountain to maintain the gradient. And sometimes the ground level just drops off and the water would flow too fast in one section. So that's where a support system like the arches we see here comes in. Now, the Romans were known for having great technology, as you may know. They used a series of arch bridges to support the water channel, the aqueduct, in places where the ground level was just too low. But it's important to note that the actual aqueduct is not the arches plus the water channel. No, the aqueduct is just the water channel sitting on top of these supporting arches here. To summarize, it would still be an aqueduct, even if the arches weren't here. And that's something that a lot of people don't understand. Now, the aqueduct here at Caesarea was built by Herod the Great. Well, there, there's some debate on whether he or his successor built it, but I'll stick with, with Herod. See, Herod wanted to make sure Caesarea was seen as a great Roman city, with amenities like running water. So he got water from the Carmel mountain range eight miles away. Turn to the right. If you followed this aqueduct, this water channel, for quite a ways, many miles, you'd hit the Carmel Mountains. You can actually sort of make them out in the distance from, from where we stand here. And Herod carried the water from those mountains using an aqueduct, ensuring a level gradient with tunnels through mountains and arch bridges where the ground got really low, like what we see here with these arches. Often we can think of people from the past as just not having advanced technology like we do today. And to some extent, that's true. The Romans certainly didn't have supercomputers. But this aqueduct was a crazy engineering feat. Herod literally found a way to get fresh water to Caesarea, a city with over 100,000 people. It's truly incredible, and I think this is something you'll remember for years to come. Well, let's all hop back on the bus for a quick trip over to the archaeological park. Enjoy looking out the window and, and seeing the Mediterranean Sea running right alongside the road. You know, this really brings back memories for me. A little bit ago, I actually came to Israel to work on an archaeological dig with a U.S. university at a site called Hukok. It's up in the north, close by Capernaum, actually, where we visited a few tours ago. And I do hope we'll get the chance to visit Hukok while we're here touring in Israel, but more on that to come. Well, the dig itself was grueling. We woke up every morning around 3 or 3.30 a.m., and in fact, I, I could often text my family when I woke up and they would be awake back in the U.S. There was a seven-hour time difference, so 3 a.m. in Israel was only 8 p.m. on the East Coast. Well, after we woke up and were given cookies and chocolate spread by the dig staff to give us a little energy, we would hop in the bus for a quick ride over to the dig site. But we couldn't get dropped off right at the dig site. Oh no, we were forging new paths. We had to hike in about 15 minutes to the dig site, and mind you, the path was uneven, it was hilly and rocky, there were thorns everywhere, and I constantly thought I would break my ankle. Oh, and it was dark at this time, around 4.30 or 5 in the morning. Then we would dig straight until noon, briefly stopping for breakfast around 8 a.m., and when I say we dug, I literally mean that. The 25 of us, mostly students, were in the trenches, shoveling dirt, using pickaxes, hauling wheelbarrows of boulders away, and oh, just getting so dirty that we were unrecognizable. And after we arrived back at where we were staying, following the conclusion of, of the dig day, we would shower and then spend the rest of the afternoon in the lab and then in a lecture, have dinner, and go to bed, just to repeat it all over again, Sunday through Friday for five weeks. 
So, of course, the people running the dig wisely scheduled a middle-of-the-dig vacation, where we took two and a half days off from digging to go enjoy some time on the beach. And we actually came to Caesarea for the vacation. We did a little touring, visiting that aqueduct and the archaeological park that we're about to see. We also stopped at Megiddo and Beit Shearim, two places that we'll visit in coming tours. But the time on the beach was especially enjoyable. You know, I'll just never forget watching the sunset on the Mediterranean one night and then splashing in the water the next night as the sun set again. It was wonderfully refreshing to not be bent over and breathing in dirt all day, but instead enjoying the refreshing salt water. Now, I will say that the kibbutz we stayed at in Caesarea, well, its main attraction was its location. Literally, I could walk out my hotel door and immediately be on the beach. But it did have some amenity issues. When I first checked into my room with my two roommates, I noticed there was no soap in the bathroom or anywhere in the room. So I went to the front desk to ask about that, and a man tells me to wait while he goes into a back room. And he comes out with 15, I kid you not, 15 mini shampoo bottles on a paper plate. And he hands me the plate and and tells me hand soap. The other thing I remember is that the bathroom was very small, and the shower head had a, a slight issue. No matter how much I attempted to fix it, the water from the shower always shot out of the shower and into the toilet. So... Those are some of my Caesarea memories, and hopefully you'll be able to make some of your own in the time that we're here. Right now, we're just arriving at the archaeological park, so let's hop out and head in to see some awesome remains here on the Virtual Voyage on Radio Free Hillsdale 101.7 FM. The first thing I want to see here is the incredible theater. It's also a bit off to the side of the site. Everything else is in the same general area, so it's best to head over there first. Wow, this is humongous. You can see it's a semicircular theater, and there are some crazy high stands. Imagine sitting all the way in the top row. What a climb that would have been. Well, fun fact, you actually can sit in those rows all the way up there, or anywhere in here, for concerts and events that happen at the Caesarea Theater today. This theater is not simply something nice that archaeological geeks uh, come and examine. No, musicians and other people come and do shows here. I know for a fact that one of my favorite Israeli musicians, Idan Reichel, has performed here on many occasions, I believe, to sold-out crowds. Well, let's go ahead and climb up a few rows to get a good view. Wow, okay, turn around, turn around. This was a great location choice for a theater. Right behind the main stage there is the Mediterranean Sea. You can see the waves right out there. It's a perfectly open view of the glorious ocean. This theater is huge. It sits about 4,000 people. And it seems crazy that archaeologists would have even had to uncover this. How could it ever be buried? It's just humongous. But this whole city, including the theater, was buried beneath the sand. And it was only in the 1950s and 60s that large-scale excavations began here. And excavations are still continuing here today, because it's just such a huge sight. Okay, well, let's carefully climb down from this theater. Please watch your step. The stone can be quite slippery, and it's kind of a sharp drop down. Okay, I think we all made it safely to the bottom, so let's walk over to the other side of the park, and we're going to make a first stop at the Hippodrome. Okay, here we are. It may not look like much. You see the remains of of stands on the right side, 
and to the left we have the Mediterranean Sea. Also, if you notice the raised platform at the very end of the stands, that's where the dignitaries would have sat. The common people would have been stuck just in the regular stands, and there could have been a lot of them. The Hippodrome would have sat up to 10 or 15,000 people. So you can kind of see the outline of a track in the ground. The shape is kind of similar to the tracks at high schools and colleges, kind of like a long U. The Hippodrome was primarily a track for chariot racing, but other games could have happened here. This was a Roman track, so popular gladiator contests might have been one of the common events. If you look behind us, you'll also see more remains, so let's go over there. There's something else to explore. Well, this is Herod's palace. It's mainly just a bunch of ruins, but you can imagine it once would have been a glorious structure. And it's right on the water, too, a perfect location. The coolest thing here at the palace is that the area in front of us juts out into the water. See that square filled with water? You probably didn't think that was part of the palace, right? But it is. Herod had the builders carve a pool into the rock at the very end of his palace, and it would have been filled with fresh water. Honestly, he was just showing off his riches at that point. The pool is right next to the sea, but filled with fresh water? That's a big wow. People have debated its use. Was it a swimming pool or fish in there? Who knows? Now, Herod probably wouldn't be too happy that now his freshwater swimming pool is filled with normal salt water as waves come crashing over it. But such is what the passage of a few thousand years can do. You can also see the remains of some mosaic floors of the palace in front of us. It's hard to make out just what this would have been since so many of the little pieces that the tesserae are gone. But considering this was the king's palace, we can imagine it was quite an elaborate and nice design. Only royalty could have paid to have the floor of his home made of mosaics. Well, the last thing I want to talk about here at Caesarea Maritima on the virtual voyage on Radio Free Hillsdale 101.7 FM is probably the thing that fascinates me most about this site, the harbor. Being on the Mediterranean Sea, Caesarea was a natural port city. And you have to imagine that there were once tons of ships coming in and out right here in front of us. But to get a better idea of Herod's incredible construction project here at the harbor, we need to get a little higher up. So let's head up to the top of, of this lookout. So this harbor is probably Caesarea's most impressive feature, at least that's what I would argue. It was the first artificial harbor in the world, and Herod utilized revolutionary technology to create it. He imported a concrete mixture that could harden underwater. He floated barges out to specific places, poured the concrete on the barges, and then sunk them to the bottom of the ocean to make artificial breakwaters to protect boats from large waves. The southern breakwater is the largest one, and it extends into the Mediterranean over 450 meters, or 1,500 feet. It became the perfect harbor, until it wasn't. The Nile River flows into the Mediterranean, and the sand and silt that collected around Israel's coastline due to the Nile River meant that Caesarea's harbor had to continually be dredged. While the harbor was functional for a while, it couldn't last forever. But still, it's fascinating for archaeologists to study this large man-made harbor. Underwater excavations have even taken place in Caesarea's harbor. What's really cool is that when we're up here looking down from this lookout point, we can actually see some of the breakwaters. See, look there. Notice how the waves break pretty far out from the coastline, not where you'd expect. 
and that's the leftover underwater concrete block stopping the water early, causing waves to break. It makes the water closer to the shoreline nice and calm, which would have been great for boats coming into the harbor. And it makes it nice for people who want to enjoy a swim in the calm Mediterranean at Caesarea. Well, that's Caesarea Maritima. I hope you've enjoyed this tour of one of my favorite sites in the land of Israel. For now, let's head back to the bus. But I suppose I could call the driver and tell him to wait a bit while we splash in the waves of the Mediterranean. Why not? Thanks for listening to this week's episode of The Virtual Voyage, the armchair travel show with me, Abigail, on Radio Free Hillsdale 101.7 FM. I hope you'll tune back in next time as we continue our adventures in the land of Israel.